0: For the next couple of weeks, we are going to focus on this, on this set of scriptures. It's Romans 5, and it, it's Romans 5, 12 through 21. And we're going we're gonna to spend a couple of weeks on this set of scriptures. Uh, it's probably the most dense set of scriptures in all of Romans, uh, one of the most dense in all of the Bible, and really getting through it in two weeks is probably optimistic, Uh, It's very loaded. I began to lay a bit of a framework for you uh, earlier in the series when we began talking about the exchange in Romans 1, particularly 18 through 32, as how that kind of sets us up for where we are right now. But what we're going to do right now is we're going to read all nine verses, but then we're really only going to focus today on uh, the the first three. And then next week, we're going to try to get through the rest of it. So we're going to read Romans 5, starting in verse 12, and we're going to go through 21. So this is what it says. Uh, It says, therefore. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sins, for sin indeed, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We talked about this is to be declared righteous. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I really don't know if we're going to get through this in two weeks, but we're going we're gonna to do our best with it. So you can break down these three kind of set paragraphs in this way. John Stott does this thing on this where he breaks this down, and I'm just going to show you what he does. Of what we just read in the first section, uh, both Adam and the new Adam, Jesus Christ, are introduced. Uh, Adam is introduced, obviously Jesus was introduced before this, but kind of he's reintroduced. Adam is introduced as one who's responsible for sin and responsible for death entering into the world. And Adam, Adam is identified as a type of one who was to come, which we're going to soon see that that's referring to Jesus. He's a type of leading up to Jesus. Then in the second paragraph, what we see is that Adam and Jesus are contrasted. They are contrasted. And then this, in the third paragraph of this section, they are actually compared. So what we're going to do today is we're going to focus just on this very first section, now, the first thing that we get in this is the word therefore. And the word therefore is actually very, very significant because it's a connecting word. It's, 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 see, the very last verse before we get into this thing about Jesus and Adam is all about reconciliation. So we talked about reconciliation last week. And it talks about how uh, we should rejoice in God through Jesus through whom now we have reconciliation. So that's what Paul tells us to do. He says rejoice because you've been reconciled. Therefore, you've been reconciled, therefore. So because we have been reconciled, which we've been reconciled, because we know that that part of it has been done and that part of it is sealed and we are who Jesus says we are in Christ only because of what Jesus has done, now we can address the problem of Adam. And it is a problem but I don't know if you noticed this when I was reading this. I've read it a lot of times because I, I, I really have a hard time reading this verse. Not because of what it says, but just because of the way that it's written. When you read that first, that, that first half. I mean, read this. Like, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all. Like, that's kind of it just kind of goes on and on. Like it's not. It's, it, you'd think that it would say, Therefore, just as, then you'd get something on the other side of it, like, just as Adam did this. Jesus did this. Like, that's how you think that this would be be written. But instead, what Paul does, is, at least in this first paragraph, he does get there eventually. But this first paragraph is really just this sort of ongoing Greek sentence where, honestly, to me, it just seems like Paul's babbling about how awful Adam is. He just keeps going on and on and on about how awful Adam is. Uh, And that's, that, he doesn't really bring any closure to this sentence at least not for a long time, so it's not a real genuine paragraph if you read it. I mean, read it. You can. It's on the screen. Like it, There's not a contrast even though he begins as if he's going to make one. The only so you get is still an emphasis on Adam and Adam's sin. But the part that I really want to focus on today, and again, we laid a framework for this a, a couple months ago, um, but it's a, it's, there's a lot of framework that needs to be laid today so that we can get to what we're going to get to next week. Uh, but the part I really want to focus on today is verse 13, which says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Now, what is this saying? This is absolutely fascinating, and it's always fascinated me. So years ago, uh, our family was living in Rockaway Beach uh, in New York, and uh, one night we were driving home. Okay, we were driving home. I think we were driving home from Don's sister Natalie's house, and uh, we had all three of the kids in the back seat of our car, and for whatever reason, they were just screaming. They're just going absolutely berserk. All of you parents know what it's like to have that happen sometimes. All three of them. Nobody was okay. I don't know why. They're just going nuts. And as I was driving, I start to see I see some flashing lights behind me and I hear a little siren behind me and I hear a little beep, beep siren, the cop pulls me over. Now in, in the Rockaways, uh, there's this, in Rockaways are on this narrow peninsula. It's about five blocks long between the beach and the, the bay and the ocean. Uh, and in, in the center of it is a train that runs across the whole thing. And so underneath the train, there's like this road that goes underneath it. It's kind of sketchy, but it was where I was driving. So it's not like the funnest place to get pulled over because you're like underneath the train tracks and trains are going by. And it's Jaime, you probably, you know what I mean. It's like, it's like not the, it's a little sketchy anyway so we pull over there and the kids are just going nuts they're screaming and this officer comes up to us and we roll down the window and I can barely hear the officer over the shrieks from my children and he he, he doesn't even know what to do he he uh he tells me what I did wrong it was something like a brake light had gone out or something like that I couldn't really hear him uh, because he, the kids in it but he was really upset at the fact that the kids were yelling he just, the kids are yelling, we're in this car, and he's trying to communicate a law that I had broken, but he can't get past the fact that my kids won't stop screaming. And so anyway, without saying anything, uh, he went back, we thought to run, to run our plate number and to do all that stuff, and we sat there waiting for him for like 20 minutes. And then Don and I were like, what is going on? And we turned around and he's just not even there anymore. Like, he literally, he literally, he just was gone. He had just driven away. He's like, I cannot handle this. I've always wanted to tell that story, and I don't know if it fits at all. I just wanted to just share it because I didn't want to forget it. I had to tell it before I forget it because this was like years and years ago, and I'm starting to get old, and I don't want to lose my story, so I had to tell it. So anyway, we live in a, in a, today we live in a world in, with a legal system where a light can be out on a car. And it's illegal. You can get a ticket for that. You are breaking a law. There are so many laws. So when driving, and uh, you have all these different laws that remind you, signs that remind you, conscientious things that remind you. So as you're driving, even if there's not a sign on the road, if you catch how fast you're going and you realize, oh, shoot, I better slow down because if a cop is waiting on the other end, I'm going to get a ticket, right? There's something in our minds that, uh, that does that because we know what the law is. Something innate in us tells us that we're breaking it because we've been kind of trained to understand what's the law, what's not the law. So even when we're not trying to be malicious about it, sometimes we do things like, well, speed. And that's a law. We break that. Um, when I was a kid, I, I always say a kid. I, wasn't, I mean, I guess I had a driver's license, so I wasn't that young at that time. But um, our friends and I would always do this prank and uh, it, it was kind of like the extreme, the extreme version of ding dong ditching. And what we would do was uh, behind these, the big business, the big box stores. Office Max was the best of all of them. Uh, there were these, there were these loading zones with these, with these bells that you would ring for the. Uh, for to, so like If you have a big delivery, you'd ring the bell and then they would open the garage or whatever and you could bring in the delivery. And these are really, really loud bells. And OfficeMax was particularly amazing because when you ring the bell, uh, it's next to the uh, emergency door. So when you open the door, all of these sirens go off in the whole building, the fire alarms. And so what we would do was we would go uh, and it says on the, on the wall, ring bell, okay? So it says ring bell. So I, I don't know what the problem is. So what we would do is our friends and I, we would go and we would just hold down this bell. And it was like, it's like the loudest bell throughout this entire back room. And they would like pound on the door, like stop ringing the bell. And we would just keep ringing it. Just keep it going and keep it going and keep it going. Until finally they'd just get so mad that they would swing open the doors and all the alarms would go off. And then we would run and they would chase us. Uh, And then uh, we would come back a few minutes later and do it again. (laughs) And do it again, and do it again. And we would hold it down literally for several minutes, as long as it took. And we kind of made this a thing. Like our friends and I, we spent a lot of our time after school. We'd be like, let's go hit the bell. Let's go ring the bell. That's what we would do. Uh, Bizarre uh, Christian entertainment, which apparently is more illegal than you think it is. So anyway, um, so even though the sign said ring bell, it didn't matter. Uh, if we were to get caught, we would probably be in some trouble. So the, the stores, they would actually, it got really fun. They would actually set these like little traps for us because we, 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 we had a relationship with Kroger. We had a relationship with Office Max, Staples, we had a lot of fun there. Uh, at, at uh, what's the, um, sports place? Um, no, we're not done. It's just like I think they're probably all out of business now. But and one of these sports stores, like MC Sporting Goods, I think it was, like they actually came out and they caught one of our friends one time, and he was trying to ride away on a skateboard, and they like literally hit him with his own skateboard. It was crazy. I don't know. It was, people they took it really seriously. Anyway, uh, we would always run from the store workers, but before long, we were doing it, and we found ourselves running from the police. See, the way we would do it is we would often send teams out to do it because we got, like we were doing, like every day we would do this. We're crazy. I don't know why we would do this. But I remember I was on the second round that day, not the first round, and I, and I swear to you, I'm not lying. This is crazy. Our friends went out there. They hit this bell. It was Kroger, and Kroger was ready for us. We rang the bell, and then these police cars came running, pulling around the corner. Like we'd done this a lot. We were pretty consistent and our friends just scattered, and they ran, and they hid, and one of, them, um, one of them actually hid in a tree not far from Kroger to get away, and they sent messages like, listen, I'm in the tree. There's like five police cars that are looking for us, um, and I, I didn't go on that run, so I was in the clear, so I, me and a couple of my friends, we were walking. Uh, we were about three neighborhoods away walking toward our friend to help, and a police officer pulled up next to us and asked us if we'd seen any kids running, and then we are like, and I haven't seen anything, and he's like, yeah, and he, and he explained to us this bell situation. And I was like, yeah, but that can't be a big deal. Like, that's not, that, that's nothing, right? They're, uh, they're, there's bells. It sounds like no, you know, I don't know, right? And they said, oh, when we catch them, there will be consequences. I'm like, okay. Well, then, he had no idea that I was the, I was like the brainchild behind half of it. Like, we were all, we did this every single day. And somewhere in that book of laws, if I were, if, 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 if it weren't already written, um, after, then, then somebody after that summer definitely went and they wrote and they made a law about that. Ring this these bells behind stores. Because it was, it, people were mad about it, right? And what, what Paul does here in this passage is he's taken us to a time when there was no law. And he says it like this. He says, sin indeed was in the world even before the law was given. So even before they tell me I can't ring the bell, even though the sign says ring bells, I'm still not supposed to do it. But this line right here This is what I want to make the central theme kind of for today's message. Sin existed even before we wrote on tablets that it was sin. Right and wrong existed even before right and wrong were spelled out for us clearly in a way that made it obvious to us. Like, have you ever been given a rule, something that you're told you cannot do this one thing, and then naturally, of course, all you ever want to do after that is do that one thing. like, I want to do that. And then that leads people to either breaking the rule or it leads people who are more like me, probably, to figure out a way that they can not actually break the rule, but do something that will make them create another rule instead uh, later. Right? You know who I'm talking about. You know that's probably half the people in this room. I know it was Josh, 100% for sure. Uh, The people who are, you're you're the reason we have to make more rules. Like if there's a law about driving the car with screaming kids, that cop probably would have given me a ticket, but there's not a law against that. So we're good. So Paul in Romans 1, what he does is that, and this is, I want to show you the parallel between Romans 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, the the lead up to this and then to 5. And 1 he says that, listen, there are actually people who actually just invent ways to do evil. They're just inventors of evil. That's kind of what we, the point that we get to is after, there's all these different things that we know are wrong and even beyond that, there are people who even are just like, you know what, I'm just going to figure out new ways to do what's wrong, but the point here is that even though these things were wrong, there was no way to count it against someone before the law was in place. Okay. Now, in the beginning, though we did not have laws written on tablets yet, God did give man a very specific command. He told him one thing very specifically to not do. He said, he said you can eat of this tree, the tree of life, but just don't eat of this one. You have two trees in the garden, eat of this one, don't eat of this one, right? That was the command. He's like, this one, he's like, he's like you know what, I, this, one will, this one will give you life forever, this one will kill you, and I'd rather you live forever in this amazing garden that we've created, so why don't you just eat the good one? That was it. It was one rule, it was one command, with a punishment, seemingly, that was spelled out for them if they disobey. But let's talk about the garden for a little while. One day I really hope to do a series on Genesis. We've been talking about doing that. Someday we'll do it at least through like 1 through 11, but probably the whole thing. Just fascinated with the story um, of the fall of man and what kind of came from it. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with the story of the fall of man, I was talking, I've talked to a lot of you about this this week, and Don and I were talking about it even a little yesterday. The reason I'm fascinated about what, this is because a lot of the conclusions that are made about what took place in the garden... Are actually drawn from other writers other than the writers of Genesis and what he says about it. But it's actually very likely if you're to read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 very closely and you were remove everything that everybody else has ever said about it, or anything you ever heard about it, you actually may have a different something new may illuminate to you. A different understanding of this passage may come than the one that you thought was there. And what it actually says really does matter. But with the Bible, particularly because the Bible is a whole and the Bible is the breathed on, inspired word of God, it is also important that we understand what the writers of the New Testament believed about Adam and what they believed about this creation account and what they interpreted these ancient stories to mean for them and to mean for their lives and for us today. There's a phrase that I, I've said to you before, I haven't said it in a while. Uh, something that the rabbis would say was this they would say, Well, God spoke. And the rest is commentary. God said it, and from there we're going to talk about it. And that commentary is incredibly important. That's why at our church we value conversations so much around here. Because lots and lots of people have lots and lots of different sources and insights into what was going on at a particular time uh, that, would lead that, that would possibly lead the author to write that thing the way that they wrote it. And so when we dive into that, it can really help us shape our lives around, hey, what's God trying to say here and what's his best for us? So, the name Adam literally means humanity. That's what the word means. Now, this is a very, very important thing to understand, and we're going to return to this a few times. Now, this is important. Hear this right now, okay? It is, it's important not because the story is only a symbol for what humanity has done. It's not only a symbol for what humanity has done. The reason it's important is because the story is also a symbol for all that humanity has done. So Paul says it like this. He says, all have sinned, <clears throat> every one of us, every single human being did what Adam did in one way or another. But one of the kind of big debates of our day that people love to talk about is they say, well, do, you actually, do we actually need a historical Adam? Like, can, like, this is kind of an argument. They say, well, can we just all agree that all people have sinned, and that we're all separate from God, and this story in the garden is just this giant poem symbolizing the mistakes that we all make as a way to explain the human condition. That is what people are asking. Can we do that? And I'll say this to you first before I conclude this. If you're only going off of just the Old Testament writings... Alone, then yes, there are a lot of people who potentially have drawn that category, have drawn that conclusion where they put it all in this category of this is merely symbolism and it's merely poetry. Because what you find in the Old Testament is they actually don't say a whole lot about Adam throughout the entire thing. But rather, what you find in the Old Testament is a pattern that demonstrates the human condition and a tendency to try, uh, to de- a tendency that we constantly kind of are kind of playing on repeat. The pattern is something like this. We start with chaos. The world is chaos, Genesis, before the, God brought order out of chaos. He creates out of nothing. He creates out of chaos. Then what happens? God makes a covenant with his people. And then what happens? Uh, normally with that covenant, there's a mission that they're given. They fail at that mission They fall, and then God has to redeem them. He has to put them back. That's what happened with Adam. He gets the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fulfill it. uh, This is the glory, cultivate the earth. Uh, He disobeys. Then he has to go back to the beginning and do it all again. But God redeems him. It's the story of Noah. It's the story of Israel, right? They're in chaos. They're being, they're enslaved and then what happens is from their slavery, God, God has to bring order out of that. He has to write a story out of that. And then, of course, he, then all, he ultimately redeems them, saves them, makes a covenant with them. They break the covenant. He redeems them again because God is the God of all grace. Right? It's the story of Noah. It's the story of David. It's all of the stories. So if you read it in isolation from the New Testament, it is possible that you could draw that conclusion. And all that stuff still matters. But the New Testament writers talk about Adam quite often. And they always refer to him as an actual man. And not only an image or a representative of man. In fact, Luke's genealogy of Jesus actually dates all the way back to Adam. So there's no doubt that the writers of the Bible believe that Adam was a physical person. There's a physical Adam, and that physical Adam holds a place in history. So for me, I would like to offer to you that this story is actually that part of the reason the story of Adam and Eve is so powerful is because it's not only viewed as something that happened, but it's also a story that tells us a lot about who we are. So God takes something, something that his history says happened, we record it, but also God says, you know what, this is also your story. Adam is Adam's story, but Adam is your story. He's also, he's my story. That is, Adam is Adam and he's also us. I mean, if I were in the garden that day, I know I can't speak for you. I I, I can only guess. I can speak for me. If I were in the garden that day and God told me I could have anything besides that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as much as I would love to believe that I would just set up shop underneath the tree of life and just keep eating from that thing all day and never ever venture over, I, I know me. And I know that eventually my curiosity would get the best of me. I'd get bored. I'd linger over there and I would do the exact same thing. But here's the thing that I want to help you guys hopefully sort out, and this is what I've been wrestling with, with this this week. To me, it seems like eating a piece of fruit, right? Eating a piece of fruit seems like a pretty insignificant crime to associate the fall of humanity with, right? That's, at least to me it does, which... That's probably why in Jewish culture and in the Old Testament days, it wasn't the centerpiece of much of their literature, the way that the Exodus was or the way that the story of Abraham was. They said it's in there, but it's a little bit less of a point to them. But here's the thing that I realized. The way that Paul writes about Adam here in Romans 5, which is probably the most descriptive set of scriptures that we get about the significance of what happened in the garden as it relates to our relationship with God, And ultimately our eternity. What Paul says here definitely sends this message. It definitely implies that Paul comes to a realization that what happened in Genesis is is actually a bigger deal than what people probably thought in the past. There's probably more weight that needs to be given to this than maybe his people at that time were given to it. And what you'll notice about Romans 5 is it is incredibly consistent with Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. See, it's not meant to be read in isolation, but it's actually meant to be a continuation. See, we've talked about this for a long time. Romans 1, particularly, is very extreme. You get the gospel at the beginning, and then you get this exchange, and you get how all these people have turned away from God, and they're all on this list, and the key word is all. All. All, all are guilty. Every single person in one way or another is on this list. Then you get into Romans 2. You say you're not on this list. Well, you're on the list because you said that. It's basically how everybody's on the list, right? And then you carry it through chapter 3. And Paul, uh, so Paul, what he does between these three chapters is he begins by using language speaking of the Gentiles. He talks to them as they. Then in chapter 2, he points it more directly at the Jews and uses language more like you. Then, uh, in chapter 3, he makes it even more personal, and he says, we. So it's them, and they, and you, and us, and me, and we. All of us. All are guilty. But then, at the end of chapter 3, carried all the way through chapter 4, Paul builds this case of how, yes, we're all guilty. Yes, everybody has sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But then he says, but in the same way that all have sinned, all are justified. All are justified simply by faith. And then, you know, this we talked about, the example he gives is Abraham. He says, if Abraham had been justified uh, after being circumcised, he would be no different than what the Jews already thought it was about. So he said, for them it had to be about faith. So he had to circumcise him before that. Otherwise it would be, okay, you do this, God accepts you. You do this, God accepts you. God doesn't work that way. God is, I accept you. And then I'd like to see you then maybe shape your life around doing this, right? But it's about grace. In Abraham's case, it was God accepts you simply because of your faith. Simply because you believe that God can use a broken person like you. Simply because you believe that God has the resurrecting power to raise Jesus from the dead. Simply because he can raise Sarah's, because he can breathe life into Sarah's dead womb. Even though he's 100 years old, he can still give life through him. That's resurrection power, and that's what Abraham believed in. So the huge contrast so far in the book of Romans is that everybody's guilty, but luckily for everyone, there is an answer. And the answer is the blood of Jesus Christ because he's the only one who's not guilty. He's the only one who never sinned. But you have to catch this. It's either by grace or it isn't. Paul makes this very, very clear. And if it's by grace through faith, then that means it's always been by grace through faith, and that means it always has to be by grace through faith. Because ultimately, no matter how hard you try, you will find yourself back on that list. Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham. The very next chapter, he found himself back on the list. He, We cannot keep it. That's just human nature. We all sin. So... In following that train of thought, and I know today's a little, bit, a little bit loaded and it's heavy. I tried to do this on like a day that's like Memorial Day be a perfect day to just dump it on you guys as we pr- launch in because most people are camping and stuff. But, <laughs> but in following that train of thought, Paul now what he does after all that is he takes us even further back, even before Moses, even before Abraham. And he takes us all the way back to the garden to show us what Adam did. And how, uh, to show us what we inherited because of Adam. And in the exact same way that he does this in Romans 3 and in Romans 4, uh, he actually shows us how Jesus has now dealt with the Adam problem. But even before that, though not absent of the consequences, if you really read the story of the garden, you see God actually showed Adam grace too. But in order to see that, you have to grasp a few things about the story of Genesis 2 and 3. The fall and what happened. We talked about this briefly when we were in our section on Romans 1 and we're talking about the exchange. Again, there's a lot of correlations between these two. But we need to lay the framework here so that we can explain um, further uh, both what's going on in Romans 1 but also we can look at it more thoroughly here in Romans 5. Because the concept of Romans 5 in a nutshell is this. This might sound confusing. Romans 5, this is the concept. We were created to live the lives like they had in Genesis 1 and 2. Then Genesis 3 happened, making it so we no longer can have the lives that were created for us in Genesis 1 and 2. But Jesus, in all of his glory, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, has now undone Genesis 3, making it possible that we can have Genesis 1 and 2 again. To redeem something means to put it back. And that's what God has always promised that he would do. He says, I will restore my people. I will redeem you. I will put you back to what you were created to be. So understanding Genesis 1 and 2 and what they actually had and understanding Genesis 3, what they did and what was lost, is crucial to understanding what Paul's saying in Romans 5. Again, and this will carry over into next week, but what they had in Genesis 1 and 2 was glory. They had the glory of God and they had a mandate to be image bearers of God to the world. It's what was known as the cultural Mandate, human beings created in the image of God being charged with the role of being God's ambassadors here on earth. It essentially really, in Genesis, is the first image we get for what we now would call the kingdom of God. People creating the world that God intended. A place that adequately represents God and we're cultivating that and spreading that and creating that. But there were two trees in the garden. and There's probably a lot of trees in the garden but there were two trees that were mentioned by name the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't eat the tree, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a crafty serpent comes in and he convinces them to eat from that tree that God told them not to eat from. And he convinces them that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then what will happen will not be losing something, it will actually be them gaining something. They will gain the knowledge that God already has and the ability to navigate good and evil. And for everything that I can tell, and we can have conversations and we can debate this, and I would love to talk about this later, but from everything that I can tell when I read Genesis 3, and I read what happened when they ate of that tree, exactly what the serpent promised them is what happened. Exactly what he said would happen, exactly what he said that they would get, they got. They got the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason that I believe that is because in the garden, after they eat it, God says this, behold, okay, now they're like us in knowing good and evil. That's what the serpent said would happen. This is what God said happened. Okay, they ate of the tree. Now they become, uh, they become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, because of that, lest, uh, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. So it's saying they ate of this tree. Now we need to make sure they don't eat of this tree, this other tree, the tree of life, because if they eat of that, it says they'll live forever. Then what it says right after that is after be, that's ki- we need to kick them out of the garden to avoid them from eating this tree. Because if they eat of this tree, then they will live forever. So what they do is they put—he puts an uh, angel around this tree, saying nobody can touch this tree. Because if they eat of it, um, like, then what would happen was they would then have life. They would have life forever, but they would have life forever intermingled with a knowledge that they weren't supposed to have. They would now live their lives forever, eternally in this state, broken forever with this new lens by which to view the world through, in which we determine what's good and we determine what's evil. Now, the reason that that is such a big problem is we were not created for that. We obviously don't know what to do with it. In the garden, right away, what happens? Right away, the very next thing that happens is, after they eat of it is they start to get hit with emotions that they had never had before. The first one is shame. Because what happens is they look at themselves and they say, oh my gosh, I'm naked. I'm not supposed to be naked. They look at each other and said, you're not supposed to be naked. Why are we naked? So suddenly that felt wrong to them. And right away, as they looked at each other and they saw something that they felt that it shouldn't be, they realized, wow, we both are going through the same thing. It's not supposed to be this way. And when they realized that, they were ashamed. There's no law that told them not to be naked. There was no law yet. But they, they, they didn't need a law. They didn't need a law because they had the knowledge to navigate that all on their own. So then they hear God coming. It says that God comes kind of in the cool of the day. And suddenly in navigating right and wrong, they realize, okay, we did the wrong thing. So they hid. But we were created for glory. We were created to reflect the image of God and that's what they had before they ate. We weren't created to look at another human being and say, that's not right. We, are, we were not created to look at a human being and say, and say, man, that's not the way that they're supposed to be. That's a lot for a human to sort out. Think about this. this. This came to my mind this week as I was walking through this. One of the things that makes God, God, and us, us, obviously are the attributes of God, the characteristics of God. Like one of the things by nature is God is love, right? We all know that. And what do we know about love? Just from, from 1 Corinthians 13, we know love is patient and love is kind. Love's not irritable, it's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrong being, but it rejoices in the truth. It believes all things, hopes all things, and it endures all things. It says that love never ends. So love, love can see something in someone else that is wrong, and it doesn't rejoice at that thing, but it still endures that thing. And it keeps believing in that person. It's knowledge that causes that irritation amongst each other. You see something, right? Someone does something, uh, you ask somebody to do something for you and they do it and they don't do it right and that annoys you. Then you ask them to do it again and they still don't get it right and that annoys you and that irks you and you start to build up this thing in you where you're looking at this person in another way saying, why can't you just figure this out? Right? That is irritation. That's, that's what, that's, it's not supposed to be that way. It, It gets under your skin. But true love can overcome that. And as humans, now we have to work for it. That's why when you get married, that's part of the covenant you make in marriage is you say, you know what? Most people read that scripture and they say, I'm going to work for this. I'm always going to err on the side of love even when the knowledge of the other person kicks into high gear and I have a thousand reasons to be irritated. I'm still going to work at it. Even when I'm frustrated. Even when I'm angry. We're human. And the natural response to, uh, in our humanity, to knowledge is sometimes going to be those things. It's going to be anger, it's going to be hurt, it's going to be frustration, it's going to be bitterness. But God by nature is love, so He can handle those things that we think are annoying. He can handle the things in us that are evil, and He can still just keep being love and keep loving us and keep working on us. See, most people focus the garden story by asking the question that I asked you a few minutes ago, and that's what was lost. And don't get me wrong, there was a lot that was lost. Adam and Eve, they, they lost their lives because of what they did, ultimately. Ultimately, now all of us have to live in a world where death reigns and finds everybody. But to me, and this is just my view, but when I view this story, I think that a more important question is what was gained? What was gained that was not supposed to be ours? And that answers knowledge and what it ultimately was was it was the first exchange see fr- from the very very beginning of this series we've been talking about sin and we've been talking about how sin is a problem we don't want to just we don't want to just brush it aside it's a problem but it's not the problem the sins that we commit are not the root problem. They're actually merely a result of what happens when our lives are filled with ungodliness and injustice. And that's when we kind of point sin out as like a specific sin. But Paul talks about sin a couple different ways. One, it's like that. And the two, is actually like as a power that kind of looms over you. And that's how he talks about it in chapter 3. And so, so one thing we said was our worlds collapse when we remove God from them. So what happens is we say we can do it on our own. And when we take God out of it, suddenly something else Kind of we let in, and that looms over us. Think about what Adam did. He essentially told God by eating of that tree, God, I want to determine good and evil on my own. That's my thing now. That's not. I don't need you to do that anymore. He exchanged, and Paul says that sin came through the world through that first exchange. So sin, by definition, it's the Greek word hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It means you have a goal. It's very simple. You have a goal, you have a target you're supposed to hit. Uh, In the case of the Bible um, and our cultural mandate in the Great Commission in the Great Commandment, you have a very specific task that you've been tasked with doing. Uh, You were created to do this thing, and you just don't. So Adam, you were created to eat from the tree of life, and instead you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You missed the mark. It's like, like I'm going to throw an arrow at the tree of life, and instead I'm going to turn, and it just goes the other direction. Hits the wrong tree. We talked about this earlier earlier in the series. By the time we get to Romans, Paul, he does begin to describe sin as actually something that has a power over people. It's not just an action. And according to Paul, this power, sin, this thing that seems to loom over humankind, it entered the world through Adam. But watch this. Because if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you don't find that word. You don't find the word sin until Genesis 4. That's where it shows up. And it's after the creation account. And it's after the account of the fall. And it's actually spoken by God to Adam's son, Cain, who was incredibly frustrated. If you you read this, you see the parallels. He's incredibly frustrated with his brother, his own brother, who he felt was receiving more favor from God than he was. Listen, this story really shows us Just what Adam opened up for us with this knowledge of good and evil thing. Cain, he's dealing with all sorts of emotions. And he's not equipped to handle them. Jealousy, frustration, anger, self-worth issues, feeling like God loves his brother more than he loves him. All the stuff that we all deal with one way or another. And he doesn't know what to do with it. And God recognizes this and God even tries to intervene just like like he does with his dad just like God does with Adam God tries to intervene God tells Adam he says you know what you can have it all just don't eat of this one tree I'm on your side let me help you don't let this one tree catch your eye because like we said whatever your eye hooks to will multiply and so God steps in with Cain and this is what he says he says Cain I see something in you he says sin is crouching at the door you need to get a handle on this. Because you can. Its desire is contrary to you. It's not in your best interest. If you give in to it, it will destroy you. But even now, even after the garden, even after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you still have the ability to rule over that thing. This is really, really important. God never, ever, ever gave up on us. He did not give up on Adam, he did not give up on Cain, and he will not give up on you. Even now that we have to navigate good and evil on our own, he still shows up. He still gives us a boost. He still tries to walk Cain through how to deal with this now. Now, we taught on this verse before, but as I was reading it this week, kind of in light of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil thing, something even more significant, at least to me, really stuck out. See, what it's saying is it's saying sin is crouching. Sin's crouching at the door. And uh, it, it, what it's saying when it says that is it says that sin postures itself in such a way that you don't know it's there. Sort it of just sort of bends down, it's low. You're at the door. You know, you look through the hole in the door. You don't see anything because it's crouching. It's hiding. These are the earliest images we get in the Bible of sin. But when you open that door, what happens? It pounces. It's subtle until it explodes. You don't see it coming until it's ensnared you. You don't know it's just outside your door waiting on your porch until you open the door and you let it in. That's why I find it absolutely fascinating that the story of the entire fall of humanity would be on account of a piece of fruit For Cain, sin was crouching. It made itself look really, 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 really small. It was like it was no big deal. It was like it was something that Cain could get away with and nobody would really notice. And despite the warning from God, sin did rule over Cain and he murdered his own brother. And this is the world that Adam gave us. A world where now Adam, the father, now has to look at his son who's still alive. And all he's ever gonna be able to see is the son who he killed. The son who's not there anymore. And even though there was not a law in place yet, there was still knowledge. A knowledge that it wasn't supposed to go that way. And as he grows in that knowledge, he's gonna become harder on himself. Because when your child falls like that, you begin to blame yourself. And you feel like a failure. And every day is a reminder This is the world that Adam gave us. A world where people hold grudges against one another because they know what others have done to them and what others have done to the people that they love. And sometimes that pain is so real that nobody would blame you for never letting it go. Nobody would blame you for holding onto it forever. But those are the worst times because if the offense against you seems big enough, Your bitterness will feel justified. So that means what you're doing is going to feel small because what they did seems so big. It'll feel like, I can hang on to this thing. I can eat this fruit. I can open this door. But in the end, it will kill you. But what's so incredible about the cross of Jesus Christ is that he wants to take that burden off of you. Because honestly, as much as we may think that we can carry it, we can't. It's too heavy for you. It's too heavy for me. But the longer you carry it, the harder it becomes to let it go. And it shapes you. And it molds you. And it forms you. And when you get into the business of determining right and wrong, you will quickly find yourself building a worldview in which people who you deem to be wrong are the enemy. If there's one thing that I've try to be incredibly aware of it's this because we want to fight for justice we want to fight for people we want to work for the causes that are close to God's heart and we can think that we're fighting for injustice when really we're spreading it and as long as we think that we have a hold on what is right and what is wrong and we believe that somehow in some way we're God's chosen vessels to make those types of judgments we run the risk of being on the wrong side of the very thing that we're fighting for The very first word that Paul uses to describe Adam is sin. He says, sin entered the world through one man. Death entered it through sin. But then the second word that he uses, and he uses it very intentionally, is the word transgression. We've talked about this word. We'll do more on it next week. This is crucial if we're going to understand what we're going to talk about next week. Because what Adam did, transgression, is a breaking of trust. And what what, what Adam did was there was a breaking of trust with God, and it affected everyone for all time. It initiated a world in which death now reigns. And now because of one man, all men and all women have to die. Life on this earth right now, that thing is temporary. It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And all of that makes this last line a bit peculiar when Paul says, Adam, it says, yet death reigned through Adam, from Adam to Moses, even those two sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And this is about Adam, that this is the only time you get Jesus in this whole first paragraph. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Well, why was Adam a type of the one to come? This is very important. Because people compare Adam and Jesus a lot, and there's really not that much comparison. And Paul's not really giving them that much comparison. I mean, it, there is, but it's not, they're not that similar. The likeness of Adam and Christ begins and ends at the range of impact they've had on our world. That's it. Jesus was not like Adam. Jesus never sinned. Jesus always did what the Father asked. Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others. But the thing that makes them the same is the fact that Adam initiated something that the whole world has now has to feel the results of. But in the same way, the arms of the grace of God through Jesus Christ now reach to the ends of that same earth, even to the most broken people. And in the same way that because of Adam, everybody now has to die, because of Jesus Christ, now everyone has access to eternal life and nobody's excluded. In eternal life, you know this by now, it is not just heaven someday, it's wholeness today. It means you don't have to live broken anymore today's a setup for what we're going to get to next week. Because God deals with the problem of Adam. He deals with it once and for all. And we can kind of in our worlds and in our cities and in our family, we can spend our entire lives living under the power of the Adam that couldn't even say no to a piece of fruit that God told him would kill him. Or we could submit our lives to the one who willingly laid down his own life so that every single person have the opportunity to be reconciled back to God. The gospel is good news. It is a declaration. It is the announcement that Jesus Christ has done what Adam couldn't. Adam was kicked out of the garden before he could eat of the tree of life. But Jesus Christ has come himself as the tree of life, as the only door that ultimately leads to God.